Please open your Bibles now to Luke chapter 19. We're going to read the verses 28 to 44, focusing on 41 to 44. Luke 19, beginning at verse 28. Nineteen and verse twenty-eight. When he had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass, when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you, where as you enter... You will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, why are you loosing the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of him. Then they brought him to Jesus And they threw their own clothes on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now as he drew near, here begins our text of verse 41. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. They will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. So far the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. It is said that most of the English preachers of his day were rather dry, dignified, even stuffy in preaching. It was a time of doctrinal decline, and a burden for the lost had waned. One biographer said, Like the apostles in the Garden of Gethsemane, English ministers had left off watching and were lulled into a deep sleep. Biblical convictions were replaced with the prevailing secular philosophies. There was a virtual famine in the land for the hearing of God's word. It was into this spiritual void that God raised up the English evangelist, George Whitfield. 
Like lightning from a cloudless sky, Whitfield stepped onto the world stage as the most prolific herald of the gospel since the days of the New Testament. His thundering voice was the catalyst for spiritual awakening and his preaching took the British Isles by storm and electrified the American colonies. Brothers and sisters, there is so much that could be said about George Whitfield and how the Lord used him in a tremendous way for the conversion of thousands. But in connection with our text for this morning, let me point out to you just one thing. George Whitfield was often moved to tears when he preached. In a time of dry, moralistic sermons that lacked any element of emotion, Whitfield's preaching came as a shock. He was filled with fervent love for sinners, and as he preached, he often wept for their souls. He could not speak of God's judgment without a deep sense of grief. On one occasion, Whitfield said, You blame me for weeping, but how can I help it when you will not weep for yourselves? though your immortal souls are on the verge of destruction. In one of his messages, he also said, The love of Jesus Christ constrains me to lift up my voice like a trumpet. My heart is now full out of the abundance of the love which I have for your precious and immortal souls. My mouth now speaks. Congregation in Acts 20 when addressing the Ephesian elders, the Apostle Paul said that he had served the Lord among them with all humility and with tears. With tears. For three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. In Philippians 3.18 he spoke of the enemies of the cross with tears. The Old Testament prophet Jeremiah is often referred to as the weeping prophet. He cried over the hard-heartedness of the covenant people and the reality of impending judgment. Now, of course, it is sinful for a preacher to manipulate his audience with insincere tears, putting on a false front from the pulpit. As Reformed people, we rightly criticize those televangelists who line their own pockets by means of emotional manipulation. However, are we Reformed people sometimes on the other end of the spectrum? Do we sometimes emphasize the intellectual and suppress emotions and feelings? Yes, we're all wired differently. Some people cry over the death of a rodent. Others rarely express any emotion at all. Some are the more stoic types. But if we truly believe what the Bible says about the eternal destiny of the unsaved, if we truly believe what the Bible says about eternal damnation, if we believe that there will one day be a separation of the sheep and the goats, if we believe that those who reject the gospel will suffer a Christless eternity, can we look at unbelievers as damned sinners with no emotion whatsoever? From our text for this morning, we see our Savior's weeping. 
From Luke 19, verses 41 to 44, I direct your attention to two things. First, he wept over their inexcusable blindness. Second, he wept over their inevitable judgment. First of all, Jesus wept over their inexcusable blindness. Look with me, please, in your Bibles to verse 41. Now, as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. There was a festive mood in Jerusalem. Thousands of people were making their way to celebrate the, the Passover when Jesus rode into the city on a colt, there was a great excitement which bordered on mob hysteria. The expectation that the Messiah would bring deliverance from the power of Rome was great. They were hoping that Jesus would use his supernatural powers so that the brutal yoke of Rome would be thrown off and Israel would once again be a free nation. The crowd knew that Jesus was a great miracle worker. He gave sight to the blind. He had recently raised Lazarus from the dead. Many in the crowd had observed his supernatural gifts. They thought that now, finally, he was going to use those powers against the Romans. Just as Jonathan, uh, Jonathan and Judas Maccabeus a hundred years earlier had delivered the Jews from Syrian oppression, so now this Jesus was going to save them from Roman tyranny. The people had come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, remembering the great deliverance from Egyptian tyranny. What better time could there be for Jesus, the Messiah, to reveal his power and throw off the yoke of Rome? The people were excited. They were excited about a conquering, reigning Messiah. And so as Jesus drew near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude began to cry out, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Matthew's account, chapter 21, says they cried, Hosanna, which means save now, we beseech, save. Save us now, great Messiah. They were quoting Psalm 118, which was a psalm of deliverance. A hundred years earlier, the Jews had hailed Jonathan Maccabeus with the same psalm after he delivered the Jews from Syrian domination. Matthew's account also says that the crowd called Jesus the Son of David, which is a messianic title. The multitude was crying out for Messiah's deliverance. They were pumped. They spread their garments on the road. It was a custom in ancient times to put your garment on the road for the king to ride over. In 2 Kings chapter 9 and verse 13, when Jehu was anointed as king, all the people laid their garments down for him to walk over. It was a symbol that spoke of submission to the authority of the monarch. They were saying, in effect, we are yours. Even for you to walk over if necessary, we place ourselves at your feet. You are our king, and we are your subjects. Matthew's account also says that they cut branches and, from trees and spread them on the road. 
Palm branches were spread in front of him to ride over. It was an act of honor bestowed on Jesus. He was hailed as the royal Messiah who had come to restore David's throne. There was gladness in Jerusalem, electricity in the air. But brothers and sisters, in contrast to the tumultuous welcome and joy of the crowd, Luke tells us that as Jesus entered the city, his own spirit was not festive. On the contrary, he was filled with sorrow. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. The word wept there in verse 41 can be rendered wailed. As Jesus reached the place from which the, the city and the temple were clearly seen, he burst into sobbing. He wept out loud. Why did he weep? Because Jesus knew that the people did not really understand who he was or what his mission was about. He lamented their blindness, hardness of heart, apostasy, and ignorance. In verse 38, they celebrated peace. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. But they did not know the deeper meaning of peace. They did not understand that lasting peace could only be achieved through the Prince of Peace. As Jesus would die to make atonement for his people's sins. For ultimate peace to be established, Jesus had to be offered up as the great Passover Lamb. Congregation, these were God's covenant people, but they did not know the way of peace. There's irony here in the words of verse 42, for the name Jerusalem has peace as part of its meaning. Salem means peace. Jerusalem was the city of peace, but the people within the city did not know what made for peace. Most of them did not have a right relationship with the Lord. There was a jovial, party-like spirit in Jerusalem, but the city and its people had rejected the way of peace, the Prince of Peace himself. True peace is known and experienced when a sinner is reconciled with God. The Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have... Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Dear friends, do you have that peace this morning? Do you have that peace this morning? Are you reconciled with God through faith in the Prince of Peace? Do you know the things that make for your peace? Crowds who praised Jesus were very religious people. They observed the Passover and the rituals of the law. They gathered at the temple and synagogue. They knew the language of Scripture and the vocabulary of the Old Covenant Church. They appeared to be right with God. But Jesus knew that most of them didn't get it. They didn't understand Moses and the prophets. They celebrated peace, but they knew little. They knew little of the meaning of true peace. Do you know the meaning of peace? 
Are you trusting Jesus who achieved peace between God and his people? Peace through the blood of the cross. Congregation, it was for those who remained in their sin that Jesus wept. Verse 41 gives us insight into his tender and compassionate heart. Although he knew their stubbornness, hardness, inexcusable blindness, pride, and self-righteousness, nevertheless, he pitied them. His lament reveals the Savior's compassion for his covenant people, most of whom, although they didn't realize it, were lost in sin. Brothers and sisters, if you know the things that make for your peace, if you have received salvation through the Prince of Peace, then shouldn't you also have compassion for those who are blind with respect to the gospel? One older commentator said, listen, we know but little of true Christianity if we do not feel a deep concern about the souls of unconverted people. A lazy indifference about the spiritual state of others may doubtless save us much trouble. To care nothing whether our neighbors are going to heaven or hell is no doubt the way of the world. But a man of the Spirit is very unlike David who said, Rivers of water run down from my eyes because men do not keep your law. He's very unlike Paul who said, I have great heaviness and continual sorrow of heart for my brethren. Above all, he is very unlike Christ. If Christ felt tenderly about wicked people, the disciples of Christ ought to feel likewise. If Christ felt tenderly about wicked people, the disciples of Christ ought to feel likewise. Brothers and sisters, Jesus knew what these people were going to do to him. In just five days, they would demand his crucifixion. Yet knowing all that would transpire in the coming days, the pain, the shame, the humiliation, the agony, knowing all this, Jesus still felt pity and compassion for Jerusalem. Aren't we sometimes so cold about those who are lost in sin? Sometimes we have so little concern for those who don't understand the message of salvation. Aren't there people in our nation who go to church because of the social events, but have no accurate knowledge of the way of peace? Like the crowds who came to celebrate the Passover, they observe certain traditions and religious practices, but they really don't get it. They don't understand. They're utterly lost. Could there be any such people right here today? Could there be any such people right here today? There are those in many communities who come to church on Good Friday, Easter, and Christmas, but they do not know the way of reconciliation through faith in Jesus Christ. Do we pity such people? Do we feel compassion for them and take an interest in them? Are we burdened for them because of their blindness? Are we troubled by the thought of where they may spend eternity? 
Charles Spurgeon once said to his congregation, In hell there is no hope. They have not even the hope of dying, the hope of being annihilated. They are forever, forever, forever lost. On every chain in hell there is written forever. In the fires there blazes out the words forever. Up above their heads they read forever. Their eyes are galled and their hearts are pained with the thought that it is forever. Oh, if I could tell you that hell would one day be burned out and that those who were lost might be saved, there would be a jubilee in hell at the very thought of it. But it cannot be. It is forever. They are cast into outer darkness. Brothers and sisters, when we ponder the destiny of covenant breakers, our hearts should be filled with pity, even as the heart of Jesus was filled with pity. If we have peace with God through Jesus Christ, we should desire that others have that peace as well. If He died as an atonement for our sins, then we should be grieved for those who don't understand or for those who resist the gospel message. With tears in his eyes, Jesus said, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Congregation, are you saddened when you meet people who have been raised in a church, yet they're ignorant of the way of salvation? Are you disturbed when you talk to people who should know the meaning of Jesus' birth, life, suffering, death, resurrection, and ascension, and yet they have not embraced the basic doctrine of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Jesus Christ alone? Perhaps some of you have relatives who periodically go to church, but they're not really trusting the righteousness of Christ for salvation. Does their spiritual condition grieve you? Why is it that we don't weep more often for those who are not reconciled to God? Why is it that we don't weep more often for those who are not reconciled to God? When was the last time that you cried about someone whose heart is hard and unbelieving? When was the last time that you felt sorrow because of an apostate church, a church where the gospel is not rightly preached, a church that is now waving the pride flag? Why are we Christians not weeping more often as Jesus wept over Jerusalem? Is your heart broken when you meet an old classmate from your Christian school who no longer sets foot in a church? Are you burdened by a neighbor who thinks that he can enter the kingdom of God because of his good life? Do we weep so infrequently because we don't see the the world through the eyes of our Savior? Or is it because we don't really understand the horrors of hell? Or is it because we have so little passion for the glory of God? Listen once again to Spurgeon who spoke so pointedly. 
Sleepy Christian, let me shout in your ears. You are sleeping while souls are being lost. Sleeping while men are being damned. Sleeping while hell is being peopled. Sleeping while Christ is being dishonored. Sleeping while the devil is grinning at your sleepy face. Sleeping while demons are dancing round your slumbering carcass. You are sleeping while souls are being lost. Brothers and sisters, Jesus was deeply concerned about the souls of people and he was keenly aware of the destiny of those who did not truly understand who he was or why he had come into the world. He was filled with pity for his covenant people who were traveling the road to eternal destruction and he was passionate about the glory of God. As we observe his tears, May our hearts become more sensitive to the sad condition of covenant breakers. May we learn to weep for those who have a form of religion without an understanding and receptive heart. May we, may we who are redeemed by Him be characterized by His tender compassion. But then secondly, our Savior not only wept over their inexcusable blindness, but also over their inevitable judgment. Their inevitable judgment. Please follow along at verse 43. Verse 43. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground and they will not leave in you one stone upon another. As Jesus cried over the city, he pronounced a prophetic oracle of doom. Some 30 or 40 years later, his words were fulfilled when the Roman legions entered Jerusalem and leveled the city. They tore down the temple and slaughtered a million Jews. Congregation, when you read the Psalms, you hear the psalmist using lofty language to describe the city of Jerusalem. For example, Psalm 48 Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. Walk about Zion, go around her, number her towers, consider well her ramparts. Go through her citadels that you may tell the next generation. Throughout most of Israel's history, Jerusalem was considered the city of God, the place where God had chosen to dwell and to place His name. It was the joy of Israel, and Psalm 48 even calls it the joy of all the earth. But this great city, the city of God, was going to be crushed by the Romans. Jesus predicted that terrible judgments were coming upon Jerusalem. A mighty enemy, Rome, would come within the next few decades to besiege it and destroy the entire city. With disturbing prophetic vision, Jesus could already see fires burning. 
Buildings collapsing and thousands slain in the streets. He could already hear the cries of men, women, and children perishing in a gruesome and hideous manner. He could see the Roman forces surrounding the city so that none could escape. He could see the palisade encircling the city. He could see the horrible, horrible bloodbath in Jerusalem. The Jewish historian Josephus, who witnessed the siege, wrote these words. While the sanctuary was burning, neither pity for age nor respect for rank was shown. On the contrary, children and old people, laity and priests alike were massacred. The emperor ordered the entire city and the temple to be razed to the ground. The wall that surrounded the city was so completely raised to the ground as to leave future visitors to the spot. No reason to believe that the city had ever been inhabited, end quote. In verses 43 and 44, Jesus could see all of this in advance. The Roman armies and General Titus utterly destroying the city. During the siege, starvation reigned within the city. When the conquest was finally complete on September 2, A.D. 70, not one of its stones was left standing on another. A million Jewish lives were lost and others were taken away captive. Everything happened precisely as Jesus predicted. Not one word failed. The horrors of the siege are well documented. Congregation, the prediction of judgment recorded in our text was not only a warning to Israel. It is a warning to all who read these words. The utter destruction of Jerusalem is a preview of the final Judgment, when all who have resisted the gospel of Christ will be condemned. The Roman siege of Jerusalem was horrible. The suffering and slaughter endured by the Jews was staggering. When you read the account, it makes you feel sick to your stomach. But dear friends, the destruction of Jerusalem is only a foretaste of a greater judgment that will come upon those who have not trusted Jesus as Savior, Redeemer, and Lord. If you think Jesus' prophecy in our text is terrible, and it was, imagine the final judgment. How important it is that you bow before the Lord Jesus now, before it's too late. Call upon Him now as your Savior. Confess before Him that you're a sinner. You've broken his laws and provoked his anger. Seek his gracious forgiveness. Only then can you be saved from his righteous wrath and fiery judgment. Brothers and sisters, the sad reality in our text is that many in Israel did not embrace God's provision. Read along with me once again at verses 43 and 44. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. 
and they will not leave in you one stone upon another. Now notice this last line. Because you did not know the time of your visitation. Because you did not know the time of your visitation. You see, Jesus' lament exposed the nation's failure. They could have known who Jesus was and what he came to do. He performed astonishing, astounding miracles and preached powerful, heart-penetrating sermons. He labored among God's people, all the while displaying a perfectly righteous life. He called them to repentance and faith, and whenever he spoke, he did so with authority. Yet God's covenant people failed to recognize that he was indeed the fulfillment of all the Old Testament messianic prophecies. They did not know the time of his visitation. Another translation says, you did not recognize the season when God in his grace visited you. You did not recognize the season when God in his grace visited you. They had a wonderful opportunity offered to them. The Son of God walked in their streets. God incarnate spoke in their synagogues and taught them from the Word. The second person of the Trinity revealed and proclaimed the majesty, love, grace, and mercy of God. When Jesus taught, healed, and ministered to Israel, it was God visiting His people. God visited Israel by sending His Son. In Lord's Day 6 of the Heidelberg Catechism, we read that God himself began to reveal the gospel already in paradise. Later, he proclaimed it by the holy patriarchs and prophets and foreshadowed it by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law. And finally, he fulfilled it through his own beloved son. The Jewish people had the word of God. They had the gospel of Genesis 3.15 where God promised that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. They had the gospel according to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They also had it pictured for them through the temple ministry, the sacrifices, and the priesthood. But in addition to God's wonderful revelation of the gospel through the pages of the Old Testament, they had the promises fulfilled before their very eyes through God's own dear Son. But congregation, in verse 44, Jesus said, You did not recognize the season when God in His grace visited you. Jesus was no mere earthly king. He is a cosmic king. In verse 40, in response to the Pharisees who asked Jesus to rebuke the disciples who hailed him as the Messiah, Jesus said, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Jesus said, if the people are silent, there will be a cry from the inanimate objects of nature. The creation cannot deny what the Pharisees were determined to deny. Those elements of nature that are mute will be moved to shouting if the lips of men are sealed. And yet, congregation, 
God's covenant people failed to grasp who he was and failed to understand his redemptive task. They could have known, they should have known, but they would not know. The leaders of Israel were willfully ignorant. And Jesus declared that the nation's failure resulted in the utter destruction of Jerusalem. Roman legions entered Jerusalem and leveled the city, slaughtering a million Jews and tearing down the temple because of the nation's willful ignorance. They were not honest about the evidence. And they were not faithful in interpreting God's word. They did not recognize the time of God's visitation. Because they rejected his Messiah, they and their children would have to live with the sad consequences. Yes, verse 44 says, you and your children within you. Believers and their seed can enjoy wonderful covenant blessings. But if we do not joyfully embrace and worship the Christ, we and our children will face frightening covenant wrath. Congregation, may these words be a warning to each one of us this morning. You have the finished word of the Lord. You have not only the prophecies and promises of the Old Testament, but you have the completed revelation of the gospel of Christ. If you resist God's truth, you may end up throwing away God's provision for your salvation. If you do not confess with your mouth and with your heart that Jesus is King and Master, you may end up reaping extremely bitter consequences. One old writer said, The last day will probably show the world that there were seasons in the lives of many who died in sin when God drew very near to them, when conscience was alive, when there seemed to be but a step between them and salvation. Those seasons will probably prove to have been what our Lord calls their day of visitation. The neglect of such seasons will probably be at last one of the heaviest charges against their souls. Deep as the subject is, it should teach men one practical lesson. That lesson is the immense importance of not stifling convictions and not quenching the workings of conscience. He that resists the voice of conscience may be throwing away his last chance of salvation. That warning voice may be God's day of visitation. The neglect of it may fill up the measure of a man's iniquity and provoke God to let him alone forever. That warning voice may be God's day of visitation. The neglect of it may fill up the measure of a man's iniquity and provoke God to let him alone forever. Congregation, on the day of judgment, no one will be able to say that Christ was not merciful and willing to forgive. The tears of Jesus reveal that he is tender, gracious, and ready to save. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. 
in Luke 13, Jesus said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. Jesus wanted to gather them and provide for them, but Jerusalem was not willing. Dear friends, your Savior is willing and ready to gather you under his wings. He's willing to shelter you and give you life. Don't reject the gracious call of the gospel and the genuine invitation of our Savior. Rather, give thanks for his tender mercy and his atoning sacrifice. Give thanks that he was ready and willing to bear the punishment for your sin and to bring you into the new Jerusalem, the city that cannot be attacked, destroyed, or overrun, the city where God and man dwell together in perfect fellowship and love. Jesus has come so that you, by his grace, may enter the new Jerusalem. The hymn writer stated it so well, Jerusalem the golden, with milk and honey blessed. Beneath thy contemplation sink heart and voice oppressed. I know not, oh, I know not what joys await us there, what radiancy of glory, what bliss beyond compare. The earthly Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans. Destroyed because of the sins of God's people. But by the grace of Jesus, we may enter the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of perfect peace. There is the throne of David. And there from care released, the song of them that triumph, the shout of them that feast. And they, who with their leader have conquered in the fight, forever and forever are clad in robes of white. Jesus is willing and able to bring you to that new Jerusalem. Then come to him. Receive the gift of forgiveness through his sacrifice. And then having been forgiven, praise him for his tender love and compassion for sinners and reach out with a tender heart to those who are still lost people of God. May the Lord give us hearts that weep for the unsaved. Let us pray. Our gracious God, come to you and we confess our coldness, our hardness, our carelessness, our love of personal pleasure, our desire to avoid controversy and inconvenience instead of showing sinners the way of life and hope forgiveness and eternal blessedness. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you will, by your Holy Spirit, create a fire within us that we would be 
O Lord, so full of zeal for the glory of your name and so full of Christ-like compassion for sinners that we, O Lord, may have it constantly upon our mind that we, Lord, may speak your word into the life of sinners today not with a spirit of superiority, not in any way putting ourselves above them, but as forgiven sinners who desire others to be forgiven as well. Thank you, Lord, so much for this glimpse into the loving heart of our Lord Jesus. Make us more like him. May we not be people who simply go through the traditions of the church and sing when we're supposed to sing and bow our heads when we're supposed to bow our heads. But Lord, may we truly be those who love the gospel, the forgiving, redeeming work of Jesus, his grace in our lives. So, Lord, being filled with gratitude that we cannot but express our hope for others, our love for others. We think, Lord, of the dreadful judgment that came upon Jerusalem because they resisted the message that was before their face. And we think of how it provides us a glimpse into that eternal judgment, the judgment that is coming, a far worse judgment. So, Lord, may we, understanding the horrors of hell, do what we are able to rescue others from it. We know you alone are ultimately able to rescue, but you use your people. And so keep us, Lord. Keep our hearts and our minds tender to the things of God. In the name of our compassionate, loving Savior, we pray. Amen.